Hi, this is Laura Bolgreen, and today we will be reading Genesis 26. A severe famine now struck the land, as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, She is my sister. He was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, They will kill me to get to her, because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She is obviously your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might easily have taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. When Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted, for the Lord blessed him. He became a very rich man, and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants, that the Philistines became jealous of him. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father, Abraham. Finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country. Go somewhere else, he said, for you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away to the Gerar Valley, where he set up their tents and settled down. He reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But then the shepherds from Gerar came and claimed the spring. This is our water, they said, and they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Esek, which means argument. Isaac's men then dug another well, but again there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug another well. This time there was no dispute over it, so Isaac named the place, the place Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last, the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. From there, Isaac moved to Beersheba, where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father, Abraham, he said. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant. Then Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place, and his servants dug another well. One day, King Abimelech came from Gerar with his advisor, Ahuzeth, and also Phicol, his army commander. Why have you come here? Isaac asked. You obviously hate me, since you kicked me off your land. They replied, We can plainly see that the Lord is with you, so we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you. Let's make a covenant. Swear that you will not harm us, just as we have never troubled you. We have always treated you well, and we sent you away from us in peace. And now look how the Lord has blessed you. So Isaac prepared a covenant feast to celebrate the treaty, and they ate and drank together. 
Early the next morning, they each took a solemn oath not to interfere with, with each other. Then Isaac sent them home again, and they left him in peace. That very day, Isaac's servants came and told him about a new well they had dug. We found water, they explained. So Isaac named the well Sheba, which means oath. And to this day, the town that grew up there is called Beersheba, which means well of the oath. At the age of 40, Esau married two Hittite wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, and Basimeth, the daughter of Elon. But Esau's wife made life miserable for Isaac, for Isaac and Rebekah. So if you've been following along through this Genesis podcast, the first story in this chapter likely sounds familiar. Isaac repeats the same self-preserving actions of his father Abraham, actions that Abraham himself committed more than once, in lying to the leader of the country he was in and saying that his wife was actually his sister because he was afraid of what they might do to him out of jealousy. And I don't know about you, but at this point, I just feel kind of tired of this story. I'm vaguely annoyed that this same choice keeps being made, that the same narrative keeps being told. I'm frustrated by the faithlessness and fear, and I'm mad about the disregard for women's lives. And honestly, I'm just kind of bored of it all. I want to skip this story. I want it not to have happened. I don't want to look for grace again in the third telling of this same scenario. But as I found myself thinking that, I realized that I think that is exactly where the grace lies. Because in the telling of this story, scripture doesn't record a God who is as fussy and impatient and rude as I am. This account of Isaac's self-preservation instinct kicking in doesn't come along with a God who erupts in anger, throwing his hands in the air in frustration, wondering, didn't you learn from your father? Don't you know better than this? Get it together, man. Not in the slightest. Instead, we see what we've always seen with this great, mysterious, awesome God. He brings the deception to the light in a way that protects Rebecca, just as he had previously delivered Sarah, and in a way that prevents Abimelech and his people from unintentionally sinning. And this tells me that our God is not a God who keeps score. He's not a God who has a three strikes and you're out rule. He's not a God who holds the sins of the parents against the child, but rather he is a God who is relentless in his pursuit of us, his protection of us, in his gentle but firm course correction, his guidance, his provision, his ability to always bring us back on track without shame. That is astounding to me. And that, I think, is where the grace lies in this story. So Abimelech issues this public proclamation, and he declares that no one may harm Isaac or his wife, and they're freed up to live in the land, to plant crops, and to prosper. And they do. In this land, they acquire great wealth, to the point that the Philistines become jealous, and they retaliate by filling in the wells that had been dug. And this is a really big deal, because wells are costly things to build. Where we live, it's easy to take water for granted. When we're thirsty, we can turn on the faucet or grab some water from the fridge. It's easily accessible. We can get it whenever we want. We really don't have to be concerned about whether or not we'll be able to stay hydrated throughout the day. But in that time and in that place, water was an important resource that took some work to get. And the filling in of the wells was more than just a rude gesture. It would have been a threat to their livelihood, to their very survival. So eventually, as his father before him, 
Isaac was ordered to leave the area because his presence had become disruptive. He does, and then he begins the process of reopening the wells that his father had dug and digging new wells. But one by one, there are arguments. There's conflict that pushes them away. One well is actually called argument. <laughs> one is called hostility. And then finally, they find a place that they call open space because there's enough room for them all to be there. And this is striking to me. There's enough room. It makes me think of conversations I've had with people who have sometimes felt like maybe there wasn't enough room for them. Not enough room for them at the Lord's table or not enough room for them in the kingdom of God. People who have felt rejected, pushed out, kept at arm's length. People who have encountered arguments and hostility, just like the wells, just by the, the same way that those wells were named, argument and hostility. People who have had run-ins with others who have been territorial about how this is the way we do things and you can't be here. I think of my Mexican friend who teaches and trains pastors and his experiences of being hassled as he travels from Mexico to the United States. The ugly and racist comments he has to navigate, the, the poor treatment that he has experienced, and how he is more gracious than I could ever imagine being, as he just shrugs his shoulders and says he will continue to follow God wherever he opens doors, and he doesn't need to worry about the people who are unkind to him along the way. Or I think of my friend who has had a difficult time feeling like he could belong in a church uh, because he's gay and has often felt rejected because of that. But instead of responding with bitterness or completely giving up on his faith, he simply keeps moving, keeps looking for a place to belong, for a place to receive spiritual nourishment, to be pointed to Jesus, believing that ultimately God is his judge and that he will always be loved by him, that there is room at the Lord's table for him. I think of my own experiences as a woman in ministry and how I've been challenged and publicly questioned about whether or not I'm in rebellion by teaching and speaking publicly. And I've had, I've been faced with the choice to either stubbornly shake my fist back at them to retaliate and try to prove a point or to simply move on to instead spend my time and energy and attention in the places that will welcome me to follow where there is grace and peace, trusting that somewhere there's enough room. There is always enough room. Isaac and his servants had the choice to go to war over these wells or to simply release them and keep moving. And my friends and, and each one of us, we have the choice to dig in our heels and go to war over the places where we want to be right. The places we feel entitled to stake our claim on something, to win an argument or to insist on our right to occupy a certain place or position or to keep our hands open, to not give up, but to keep moving, to trust that we'll find our way, we'll find our place, we'll find the nourishment and sustenance and life-giving water our souls need because there is always enough. The kingdom of God has enough room for all of us. So God, I pray that you would help us to remember that truth today. Help us to remember that you are a God who is gracious and who doesn't keep score, who doesn't keep track of our sins. You're not um, punishing us for the sins of our, of our parents or, or keeping a tally of how many times we've let you down, but instead you meet us with grace every single time. And I pray that you would help us to know that truth, to rest in that truth, and that as we, as we let that 
um, soak into our hearts and our minds. May it free us up to live open handedly so that when we face places where we feel rejected or pushed out, that we don't feel the need to be in self-defense mode all the time. We don't feel the need to fight back, but that we can trust you that we can keep moving, keep seeking you, and trust that there will always be enough room in your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.